Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf on this cold winter's night, and today we're going to recount the epic story of the Battle of Dunkirk. It's a battle that's directly inspired hundreds of novelists, screenwriters, historians, and even humble podcasts like mine. But before we can jump into the beaches of France, I want to thank Will from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Robert from Wisconsin for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the Make a Donation button. I also want to respond to an email I got from somebody in Hateng Province, South Africa. I want you to know, and everyone to know who's listening to this, what you put out will come back on you. I know this from the study of history. That's why the Spartans said you should never make war on people for too long, else they'll learn how to fight. And if you put out hate, you're going to get hate back. And if you put out respect, you're more than likely to get it back. I'm not saying you're always going to get it back. I know that. But it's easier to defend yourself if you've got a clean conscience. A man wiser than me said that all good people should be as wise as snakes and as peaceful as doves. And that's what I'm telling you, Durkee. I'm telling you to be wise as a serpent and peaceful as a dove. The dove flies away from trouble. But if it's in a cage and there's no way out, you'll find the most peaceful doves grow the most venomous fangs. And if you don't believe me, ask the Okinawan Islanders. Their overlords outlawed all forms of martial arts and confiscated all weapons from the local islanders. The Okinawans responded by turning their bodies and farming implements into weapons. They developed karate, and so the dove, as it always does, grew fangs. And now, my venomous doves, Dunkirk. Now, the best overview I've seen for setting the stage of this battle comes from historian John Keegan. He provides an excellent overview of the events leading to the Battle of Dunkirk in his Atlas of the Second World War, and it goes like this, quote, The plan was called Sickle Stroke and was masterminded by General Manstein. It called for the German army to encircle and destroy the Anglo-French armies in northern France. The French, with their British allies, depended on the Maginot Line to defend the Franco-German frontier. The line, along with neutral Belgium, was to be covered in the event of a German invasion by rushing the Allies' mobile forces to the line of the River Dial in Belgium and hinging their right flank on the Ardennes Forest, which was believed to be untankable. So much of the Anglo-French forces were far to the east at the start of the battle. The Allied decision to defend Belgium, on which the fate of whole nations depended, was the pinnacle of folly. The Germans had performed extensive exercises to test the viability of an armored thrust through the Ardennes forest, allowing them to bypass the Maginot Line and easily bag any Allied troops unlucky enough to be stationed in Belgium. The Germans planned to use armored thrusts along with advanced units of mobile sappers who would ensure the infrastructure of Germany needed to defeat her enemies was in place before the troops arrived. Numbers on each side were about equal. The Germans deployed 136 divisions against Allied divisions that were equal in approximate strength. Allied tanks numbered 3,000, while the Germans had 2,500, though the Germans were superior in aircraft. The Allied tank formations were dispersed, whereas the Germans had organized their tanks into 10 massed, concentrated panzer divisions, strongly supported by tactical air forces. They were massing like a herd of buffalo in anticipation of Army Group A's drive across the Ardennes and then on to the Meuse River, end quote. On May 10th, the panzers rolled out, crossing the uncrossable Ardennes forest. In Holland, the Dutch army held key fortresses and cities, obstacles that could easily hold up the German advance for weeks or even months. They had to be taken out. 
German parachutists penetrated the main fortresses and secured bridgeheads for the onrushing tank columns. French relieving columns were turned back on May 14th after the Luftwaffe had bombed Rotterdam and killed 30,000 civilians. Holland quickly surrendered. The Germans weren't the kind of people you held up for long, not if you wanted to keep breathing. On the tide of armor came, crossing bridgeheads that were already secured by their airborne troops, blowing up and literally driving over any resistance they encountered, and behind them the infantry spread out, a wave covering the sand of a beach. On May 10th, German glider troops neutralized a key fortress defending the Meuse River, crossing at Ibn Imael. The next day, the Belgian army began to fall back to the Dial River, where the French 1st Army Group and the British Expeditionary Force linked up with them. But by May 15th, the German infantry troops were outflanking them from Holland in the north, while the 6th Army was pressing against the Dial River. The whole time, the Allied forces were bleeding troops, leaving equipment behind. Put succinctly, they were losing. Meanwhile, the German tanks had crossed the Meuse River on May 13th and were driving into northern France like they owned the place. French resistance in the area collapsed, and the eight panzer divisions drove towards Abbeville on the English Channel in northern France. If they could take and hold the main river crossings on the Somme River, the Belgians, the British, and the French armies in northern France would be trapped in a giant pocket. Meanwhile, back in Belgium, Gamelon, France's supreme military commander, withdrew the Allied forces from the Dial to the Scheldt River. By May 16th, most of Belgium was already overrun. Gamelon tried to organize counterattacks to save his crumbling front. Armor thrust by the French led by de Gaulle dented but did not stop. The ever-widening German front. Still, the German tanks came on. St. Quentin fell on May 18th and then Abbeville fell on May 20th. Now the Allies really were cut off. It had taken 10 days. But there was still the chance that a counterattack might allow the Allied forces to break out of the pocket. The French made a number of counterattacks, but each one failed worse than the one before it. By May 23rd, they stopped trying to break out. That's when the German Python began to squeeze the perimeter of the Allied pocket. The Belgians would be the first to fall. A German attack separated the Belgian army from the British Expeditionary Force on May 25th, forcing Belgium's surrender on May 28th. John Keegan explains what happened next, quote, Meanwhile, the British and French forces in the north were forced back into what would become the Dunkirk perimeter. The succession of water lines surrounding the port of Dunkirk in northern France near the Belgian border was judged by Hitler so serious an obstacle to his tanks that he ordered their halt on May 23rd. This was the glimmer of hope the Allied armies needed to snatch victory out of the teeth of defeat, end quote. And this is where the Battle of Dunkirk really begins on May 23, 1940. At the same time as the French counterattacks were failing, Winston Churchill was biting his lips as he looked out at the situation map. The Germans were advancing everywhere. His entire army was cut off. Churchill decided that Calais, 24 miles from Dunkirk, must be held at all costs. This was a tough decision to make because it meant throwing 3,000 highly trained troops into the sausage grinder. On May 25th, the order was sent out to the British garrison at Calais. This is the exact text of the order, quote, Every hour you continue to exist is of the greatest help to the British Expeditionary Force. The government has therefore decided you must continue to fight come what may. Have greatest possible admiration for your splendid stand. Defense of Calais to the utmost is of the highest importance to our country. 
The eyes of the Empire are upon the defense of Calais, and Her Majesty's government is confident you and your gallant regiments will perform an exploit worthy of the British name, end quote. The order was a death sentence, and the men who received it knew it, but they stood they fought on anyway. You sons of Britain listening to this, could you do what they did? This is what we mean when we talk about civilizational decline. Many of you struggle to hold down jobs, let alone defend Calais to the last man. I should tell you that Calais was the westernmost town on the Dunkirk pocket. If it fell, the Germans could flank along the entire coast and cut off tens of thousands of allied soldiers defending the pocket. Brigadier General Nicholson, was the man tasked with defending Calais until the last drop of British blood. He deployed his men as best he could, using the remaining 21 tanks that hadn't already been destroyed by the Germans. He formed two perimeter lines to defend the port. 800 French soldiers also manned the perimeter. Walter Lord explains General Nicholson's plan like this. He planned to stand fast as long as possible, and when enemy pressure became too great, he would gradually pull back towards the harbor, where he might even make a getaway across the English Channel. On May 25th, a German officer, under a flag of truce, approached Nicholson demanding the unconditional surrender of the garrison at Calais, or the entire port would be utterly destroyed. Here is Nicholson's reply. The answer is no, as it is the British Army's duty to fight, as well as it is the Germans. A few minutes later, the Germans replied with this. An entire flock of screeching Stuka dive bombers, along with a death-belching herd of panzers, attacked the Calais defenses. It was a symphony of death, conducted with Germanic efficiency. For three days, the pounding went on, and the British were forced back towards the beaches. On May 26th, the Stukas came back, screaming like mechanical demons. Private T.W. Sanford ran for a cellar, scooping up an equally frightened small dog. Sanford and his mates crouched in the dark while the dog lay cowering in a corner. And after the raid, they emerged into a street littered with bricks and broken glass. The bombing broke up many of the defending units, and Sanford never did find his own company again. And at 10.50 a.m., the Germans cracked the perimeter shell of Calais just as easily as a housewife cracks an egg. The Germans poured through the gap in the lines and began systematically isolating the Allied garrison, liquidating small pockets of resistance one at a time. A modern historian tells what happened next, quote, Communications collapsed, and Brigadier Nicholson was soon isolated in an old stone fortress called the Citadel, with his staff and a handful of French defenders. By 3 p.m., the Citadel was completely surrounded, and around 3.30, a detachment of German infantry broke through the south gate. That did it. With the enemy inside the walls, resistance evaporated. Hands up, Brigadier Nicholson emerged from his command post to meet his captors. Down by the harbor, a few isolated units fought on. Sergeant Fred Whaler found himself defending a tunnel that was rapidly filling up with wounded. They fought throughout the afternoon, but near sundown, an English officer appeared and told Whaler to cease firing, and they were surrendering. Soon, an angry German arrived with a pistol and ordered the last defenders out. 
It was the most humiliating experience of Fred Whaler's life. He carried the shame in his heart until he died, end quote. Now a key part of the British defenses, Calais, had fallen and the outer perimeter around Dunkirk began to collapse. For the next week, it would constantly shrink. Already six crack panzer divisions were probing the defenses near the Ah Canal Line, just 12 miles away from Dunkirk. The next week would possibly decide the fate of not only France and the British Empire, but the entire world itself. And on May 26th, British leaders accepted the inevitable and implemented the withdrawal of all Allied forces trapped in the Dunkirk pocket. The operation was named Operation Dynamo. In the meantime, the Allied forces in the pocket had to hold out, but to hold out would require a huge sacrifice of men and materiel. The German tide had to be stopped no matter what. And all along the escape corridor leading to Dunkirk, the Allies set up 16 strong points centered on villages to absorb and delay the German advance. And if the garrisons held long enough, the Allied army might be saved to fight another day. Now keep in mind these 16 garrisons aren't fighting to win. They're fighting merely to ensure the Allies behind them have a chance to escape. That is their one and only function. And many of the men on the front line knew they would not survive. 500 years of Prussian military efficiency were coming down on their heads. It's the hopeless battles for these strong points that I'm going to recount to you now. The battles the men fighting knew they would lose. Keep in mind that behind the semicircle of garrisons are hundreds of thousands of men streaming onto the beaches of Dunkirk, clogging communications, soaking up ammunition and food which might reach these garrison fort towns, so the situation is utterly confusing. Now we're about to go through the battles for the rearguard fortresses, and when I say the name of a town, I want you to realize it's a stronghold along the perimeter of the pocket. Now let's dive into this like a Stuka bomber. The first fortress to join battle with the Germans was Haysbrook. The onslaught came on May 27th. German tanks turned the flank of the British infantry before they even knew what hit them. One man named Jack Baker was manning the last artillery gun defending a key road junction outside the village. A panzer rolled into view and Baker laid two shells into it. The panzer responded by spitting machine gun bullets at Baker's position. Then two more panzers joined the battle, leisurely cruising towards the English line like tourists in golf carts. That's when another British field piece joined in the fight. The English artillery kept firing, but the German steel was strong. English shells trampolined off the armor. Two of Baker's crew had already fallen, their bodies fumigated with bullets. That's when a panzer rolled up to Baker's strong point and fired point blank into his position, the way Smog imperiously attacked Lake Town in The Hobbit. Everyone around Baker died, vaporized in the flames. Now it was up to Baker, alone and exhausted, his clothes ripped and falling off his body, the men, his comrades all around him dead and staring with unblinking eyes ceaselessly at the sky. This man, Baker, alone had to stop a quarter of the German army. And this man did it. 
This one man held on and kept firing his field piece. His fortifications literally collapsed around him, and he fired on, not even thinking about the danger, too tired and overworked to worry about it, working mechanically like he was an extension of the machine, the sweat hornet-biting his eyes. The dead eyes of his comrades gaped at him as he worked, and finally he went to load another shell, but there were no more shells. He was out of ammunition. He took out his pistol and made ready to fire at the three onrushing German tanks, but they were gone. They had disappeared. They had decided to go around Baker and let the infantry mop him up. That's when a captain ran up to Baker. Baker grinned like the Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland. We got him, sir. We got the buggers. Let him come. You're relieved, Sergeant, but I've got to stay with my men, sir. Your men are all dead. You're relieved. That's when Baker looked around him for the first time and registered what he saw. He hadn't been on Earth before. He was fighting from another plane. The war had elevated him to a higher dimension. But then Baker looked around and saw the butcher shop that used to be his fighting position. The bodies of his men were turned into goo, peppered, and splayed like red meat. But Baker made it. Few others could say the same. One stronghold had fallen, 15 more remain. The next strong point the Germans hit was Epinet. Captain Jake Churchill and 80 men prepared to defend the village as every German in a 15-mile radius converged on them the way consumers run to Walmart for Black Friday. The first group of five Germans started slinking towards Churchill and he told his men not to fire. Until he shot one with his bow and arrow, Churchill stood up like a two-by-four, bringing the lead German into his sight. The bow twanged, and the arrow whistled through the wind, biting into the chest of the advancing German. That's when the rest of his men let loose with a barrage of rifle fire. Three more Germans, their bodies ragdolling from the rifle fire, fell dead. But one got away to warn the others. It won't be that easy again, warned Churchill to his men. Meanwhile, at La Bassier, the southern anchor of the perimeter defense system, the first Queen's own Cameron Highlanders were the last Scottish regiment ever to wear kilts into action. It was against regulations, but though men were being sacrificed for the rest of the army so the regulations could go to hell, they wanted to die in the attire of their forefathers, and that's just what they did. Major Peter Hunt was hit in the leg, but he fought on, hobbling from unit to unit. Walter Lord picks up his story, quote, for two days, the Scotsmen had held out, hurling back every German attempt to cross the canal, but it was a costly business. After one counterattack, a company had only six men left, nowhere near enough to hold the dearly bought ground. On May 27th, the enemy again stormed across the canal, heedless of resistance, like they were gods, just running straight at the Scotsmen. Soon the town was actually burning around them. They couldn't even see through the smoke. Many wounded burned alive. You could hear them screaming. Not any words, just shouts of agony, the kind of shouts that wake you in cold sweats 20 years later. One man was found crisped over, like the blackened bark of wood-fired barbecue. The Scotsmen were all surrounded, and La Bassier fell, end quote. The men defending the village of Festubert were next on the Germans' death list. The panzers drove straight at the British defenders the way an elephant charges hyenas on the plains of Africa. One of the Englishmen had found an old gramophone, and the 1928 hit Ramona played ceaselessly as the men fought. The tango beach theme sounds lullabying the men as they died.
The allies managed to hold out until dark, using the stone walls of the village as a shield against the tanks circling the small town like sharks. Finally, the order came for the men to withdraw, and at 10.30 p.m., the men started out cross-country. It was a fight the whole way. One man named Stevenson ran point-blank into an enemy sentry who didn't have time to scream. Stevenson cut him down the way Han Solo shot at Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back, exploding the sentry's nose through the back of his skull, the brain matter splaying across the ground like spaghetti sauce spilled across a kitchen floor. Next, the 250 retreating soldiers came to a road where an entire rumbling convoy of German vehicles passed in front of them for more than an hour. My God, one man said, did they leave anyone left in Germany? Finally, there was a lull in the traffic and the men continued their anabasis over the field through waist-deep sewage. Relentlessly, the men raced against the dawn. Soon, the Stukas would be hunting humanity in death clouds. The Scotsmen had to make it back to their own lines before the sun shone on them like a spotlight. At 5 a.m. on the 28th, Stevenson and his ragtag band stumbled into Estaires, to a town held by the French, who gladly shared their stiff red wine with the exhausted men. Some slept where they fell, and others gulped down the ethereal wine. Soon their red blood would flow again, just like the red wine channeling down their throats and sending alcohol blitzing through the tunnels of their blood vessels. At the same time, at Lacono, an entire battalion was caught in the open and the panzers made sport of them, running some down, crushing the tongue-biting wounded with steel-plated treads, blowing others into modern art masterpieces, machine-gunning still more. Few survived. Another group of 98 men were surrounded in a farm complex by the SS Totenkopf division. The Nazi true believers didn't even hesitate. They set fire to the farm, forcing the English to surrender. They were marched down the road and piteously mowed down by SS machine guns, showing them the true meaning of National Socialism. One after another, the screening fortress towns fell. The German noose was tightening, and it was tightening quick. A modern historian tells what happened next, quote, La Paradis, Festebert, Haysbruck. It was the fight put up at the villages like these that brought the time so desperately needed to get the trapped troops up the 60-mile-long corridor to Dunkirk. The British 2nd Division took a merciless beating, but their sacrifice enabled two French divisions and hundreds of thousands of British soldiers to reach the coast, end quote. In the show we did back years ago on Australia, I read the poem Defend the Bridge, and I've taken some flack for that. People have written and said that I glorified war in that show. Friends, these British soldiers defended the bridge. These Frenchmen made the enemy choke on their fatherland's soil. They blew out the glass of their shoe shops and stood to the last man. These men changed the world. I could list a thousand more examples. Bravery does matter. Dying for others is the very definition of love, according to Christ. And so I say now, as I said two years ago, defend the bridge. It is not hard. Defend the bridge. A few shells and you're riding light beams to heaven. Defend the bridge for spite alone because it is hopeless. It's better to die for a lost cause than money. Save the gray-haired from the enemy's torture. Defend it. Fail at defending it. Lose at defending it. But defend it anyway. Defend 
the bridge. In the British 2nd Division was cut to pieces defending the bridges along the La Bassier Canal, but they saved England in the process. But even as they defended the roads, the air overhead was bare. The sky belonged to the Germans, and they preyed on the retreating allies like Nazgul in the film Return of the King. Still the Allied soldiers made the long walk to Dunkirk, a jumbled mass of disorganized men cut off from units, cut off from equipment, worn out from walking and dodging machine gun fire. Many of the men developed enormous blisters and could no longer walk, their comrades acting as crutches, supporting their friends for miles, falling down like drunks at the nearest safe space inside the Dunkirk perimeter. A modern historian picks up the tale, quote, at Dunkirk, nobody was ready for the avalanche of retreating men. General Adam, the man appointed to organize the evacuation, hadn't even arrived yet. The Allies were trapped in a 30-mile-long and approximately five-and-a-half-mile-wide pocket. They were literally about to be driven into the sea. The British commanders began to believe their only hope was the sea. The Royal Navy would come and get them. For centuries, in a tight spot, the British had always counted on their navy to save the day, and it had never disappointed them. On May 27th, Admiral Ramsey of the British Navy listened as a captain detailed the gravity of the situation to him, complete with a map of troop concentrations in the Dunkirk pocket. Captain Moulton described the desperate situation at Dunkirk and the need for a great naval effort if hundreds of thousands of men were to be saved. The first and only ship to arrive the previous day, May 26, was the Mona's Isle. She scooped just 1,420 men from the beaches of Dunkirk and returned to England on the 27th. Needless to say, it wasn't enough. Much, much more must be done if Britain's army was to be saved, end quote. Now the bad news just kept rolling in for the Allies. On May 28th, the King of Belgium asked Germany for a ceasefire. Another army had been knocked out by the German tsunami of steel, and reports came in that some young commander named Erwin Rommel had perforated the British line and captured Armentieres. Now the rest of the panzers were linking up with German infantry in the east. The big squeeze had begun. At the same time, the Germans were kicking the French First Army's teeth in. Alistair Horn remembers the slaughter of the French army in the north near the Belgian border like this, quote, Nearly half the French first army was now cut off in a smaller pocket around Lille. For four more days, General Molinet fought an immensely courageous but ultimately hopeless action, which in fact enabled the British expeditionary force and the remainder of the first army to fall back safely into the Dunkirk bridgehead. But when the jaws of the trap closed, one of those to be taken, along with some 35,000 French troops, was General Prio, captured at his command post in Stanwerk by men of the 4th Panzer. And during the fighting, Rommel once again came close to losing another of his nine lives when German heavy shells landed by mistake a few yards from his signals vehicle, killing one of his battalion commanders. Rommel just spit in the direction of the shell and kept the panzers rolling, end quote. Meanwhile, the French towns that were doubling as allied fortresses began to fall like one-piece defended regions in the first moves of a risk game. Wormhout and Beberville fell on May 28th, and Gravelin, midway between Calais and Dunkirk on the 29th. But something worse was happening. The whole French population was overcome with defeatism. It spread like the flu. Arthur Kussler was in Paris during the fall of France and noted, 
I saw the crowds tripping over themselves to leave that city at the railway stations. The disappearance of the buses and taxis from the streets was ominous. The melting away of the town. It was like it was infected with a plague. The tommy guns of the cops at the street corners. The peculiar glance of the people in the underground with the dim candles of fear lit behind their eyeballs. The fifth column, psychosis, a fear of spies and informants in the midst of the crowd, end quote. French Senator Bardot, who was again present in Paris, attended a morale-boosting event. He remembered it like this, quote, The spectacle of the stricken and silent crowd, which had lost his voice so that it can no longer even sing the national anthem, and it recited the litanies mechanically. That crowd was incapable of comforting me. The shadow of the great defeat of 1870 was spreading over the entire country, end quote. Many politicians and leading men in France began to advise Prime Minister Paul Reynaud to seriously consider making a separate peace with Germany. Defeat was in the air. It hung around like a fog. British officers on the ground in France could sense it. An unease between the two countries, even between the soldiers and officers on the ground. In the meantime, the English hadn't been playing tiddlywinks. They had steadily built a second line of defense surrounding the Dunkirk bridgehead. Now the Germans began to probe those defenses. But it was in the air that the most decisive battle was being played out. You could see it from the ground, pilots facing down pilots in endless dogfights to the death. A modern historian picks up the story, quote, It was in the air that the holding of the bridgehead was predominantly decided. The Royal Air Force now threw in every single plane available. Day and night, its bombers blasted the attacking Germans, while fighter pilots flew sometimes as many as four sorties a day. Altogether, the British fighter cover totaled 2,739 sorties, while the evacuations lasted. For the first time since the campaign began, the cruelly beautiful Goring's weather that had so aided the Luftwaffe now deserted it. During at least half of the nine-day epic of Dunkirk, fog and bad visibility limited flying. On the good days, the Luftwaffe, considerably weakened by the losses and strain, found itself sorely pressed by the furious concentrations of aircraft that the RAF, flying from bases just across the Straits of Dover, was able to put in the air over Dunkirk. Only on two days, May 27th and June 1st, did the Luftwaffe enjoy outstanding success. Each day that went by proved Goring's boast that he would finish the job to be a little further from realization, end quote. At the same time, the British were making a tremendous effort to get their men out of France. The numbers leaving grew exponentially as resources were continuously shifted to Dunkirk. An entire empire in the eyes of the world looked to this tiny town. Men halfway across the world ran to their mailboxes to read the battle results. Imagine the most important football game of your life. Remember how you felt when your team was playing? Now drag this feeling out for weeks. That was what it was like for the civilians reading their papers and watching the newsreels at home. And the first information coming into the nerve-wracked civilians was not good. On May 27th, only 7,669 men had been embarked from Dunkirk. But the next day, the Royal Navy was reinforced by a vast armada of small boats collected from all over the south coast of England. I'm talking about guys like the men on the show Deadliest Catch, using fish boats to take 10 or 20 men across the English Channel on May 28th. There were 17,804 men saved. On the 29th, 
the arrival of French warships helped boost the day's results to 47,310, and so on, until a peak of 68,014 men were evacuated on May 31st. That same day, Churchill was in Paris again, attending a meeting of the Supreme War Council of the Allies, and was able to tell the Council that the astonishing figure of 165,000 men had already been evacuated. That's when Churchill stood up at the meeting like a rapper in a music video, everyone else suddenly thrust into the background to play a bit role, and this is what he said. The peoples of France and Britain were not born into slavery, nor can they long endure it. It is impossible that a temporary Nazi victory should bring a final conclusion to the glorious histories of France and Britain. Britain, he insisted, would carry on with the war if every building in France and Great Britain is destroyed. The British government is prepared to wage war from the New World if through some disaster England herself is laid waste. The British people will fight on until the New World reconquers the old. It would be far better that the last of the English people should fall fighting and die and our whole history be finished, than to linger on as vassals and slaves to some foreign power, end quote. That same day, May 31st, the commander of English forces in the pocket field, Marshal Gort, was ordered to evacuate the Dunkirk Bridgehead himself personally. The remaining British forces were placed under French command, and the battle raged on, while Allied ships desperately tried to rescue the remaining defenders, and the air crews from both sides gambled their lives away in interminable death acrobatic dogfights in the sky. The battle for the skies had begun in earnest on May 27th. Before then, the Luftwaffe had been on a picnic, destroying French planes on the ground, swatting aside the obsolete English aircraft that ineffectually tried to stop them. That's when a new sound was heard in the sky above the surrounded men of Dunkirk. The British committed two new weapons, the Hurricane and the Spitfire. It changed everything. These fighters were considered too valuable to base in France. But now that the battle had reached the shores of the English Channel, the fighters could operate from bases in England, and they sallied forth to meet their enemies in open combat. However, there weren't enough of them to keep control of the skies, and when they were gone, the Germans rained death down on the defenders of Dunkirk with impunity. On May 29th, the German ground troops were in such close contact with Allied defenders, the Luftwaffe was forced to suspend attacks on the perimeter of Dunkirk and could only attack the beaches and supply lines. And what an attack came! Over 400 aircraft were concentrated in northern France and they were all aiming at the 10 miles of beach behind Dunkirk. Walter Lord describes the scene, quote, It was no ordinary raid. The 400 aircraft heading for Dunkirk were led by 180 Stukas. By 3 p.m. they were there and the Royal Air Force was nowhere in sight. Corporal Hans Mannheer, a gunner radio operator flying in a Stuka, looked down on a remarkable sight. Ships were crowded together everywhere. It reminded him of an old print he had seen of the English fleet gathering at Trafalgar. The pilots were scanning for targets. That's when they saw a fat group of more than a dozen British ships. It was hard to imagine a better target. And the Luftwaffe planes being flown by war-hardened veterans were flying directly at Lieutenant Robin Bill of the British Expeditionary Force. His eyes transformed into coffee saucers as he saw the Stukas break off from the main force and Formula One race towards his position. Oh my god! 
screamed Robin as he dived for cover. That's when the world began to combust around him. One bomb landed squarely on his pier, 20 feet in front of him, hurling slabs of concrete into the air the way a kindergartner throws a toy car across the living room like it's nothing. A chunk sailed by Robin's ears, killing a soldier further down the walkway, and he could hear his comrades crying, Oh God, help me, help me! Shaken and covered with dust, Bill felt something oddly moist. It was a stray puppy licking his face. At first, he had thought it was blood. The plane seemed to attack in twos and threes, dropping a couple of bombs every time. There were occasional breaks, but the fighting never really stopped. And lying at the very end of his pier, the destroyer Jaguar managed to cast off. Packed with troops, she headed for home as the Stukas dived on her like flies swarming a rotten apple. They scored no direct hits, but several near misses did fearful damage. Shrapnel riddled her port side, slashing open fuel tanks and steam lines, peppering the men with steel the way a cook seasons raw steak for the grill. The Jaguar quickly lost headway, and the Destroyer Express raced over to save her. The Jaguar didn't sink, but she almost did, and her invaluable cargo space was taken out of action for the duration of the evacuation. Back at the pier, it was the destroyer Granada's turn for the Luftwaffe's special attention. Several near misses spilled shrapnel across the decks. Then another Stuka dove on the Granada and found her mark. One bomb landed aft, another on the bridge exploding in an oil tank below. A great sheet of flame shot up through the deck, blackening the men in his path like overcooked bacon. One crewman pinched himself when he saw a tin hat helmet rolling along the deck. The helmet was literally glowing neon red from the flames. The Granada burned on for hours and then finally blew up, vanishing in a mushroom cloud of smoke. Still the attack wore on, and all of this is happening simultaneously, not literally like I'm telling it. I wish I could tell you all these stories at one time, so as to convey the confusion the commanders had to deal with on a constant basis as this battle wore on. Meanwhile... German aircraft were diving on the lines of men crowding the piers of the port, lasering lead into their wet bodies, bursting open their insides like obscene pinatas. One man named Kavanaugh was in a crowd when a German aircraft broke off and dived towards his group. Suddenly, Kavanaugh was body slammed on the ground, and a man he had never met smothered his body with his own. Then the bullets came, slapping into the bodies of the men all around Kavanaugh, Pebbles and hot blood splatter spittled into his face. Men screamed. The roar of the attacking plane's engine rushed overhead. You felt the airplane's jet stream claw at your clothes and flow up your sleeves. And when the attack was over, Kavanaugh asked the man laying on him to get off. There was no answer. Hey, hey, get off me! Kavanaugh screamed. But still, the man's dead weight smothered him like cheese on Waffle House hash browns. Kavanaugh wormed himself around to see the unblinking blue eyes of a man staring into his. The man on top of him was dead. His body had shielded Kavanaugh. He had given his life to save Kavanaugh, a man he had never met before. And Kavanaugh began to run, right there on the pier. He ran while the battle raged around him and the shrapnel death danced through the air. Kavanaugh ran. 
The bombs were everywhere. Still, he ran on in a race against shrapnel. A thousand feet in the air, a bomb detached from the fuselage of a stuka. At first, it slowly lobbed in the air, but as it turned horizontal, the steel-encased explosive gained terrible speed. With each inch through the air, the aerodynamic tip of the bomb slammed through the roof of a wooden ship, blundering through the ceilings. Meanwhile, the fuel inside the bomb engaged with the impact. It exploded in the main saloon, chairs splintering apart a jagged piece the size of a tree limb impaled one man while another man is shockwaved by the blast his bones broken and body burned and turned into blackened chicken the flames spread across the old wooden ship as fast as a lie soon the whole thing was a giant burning viking pyre gunner chandler was in the middle of the flames and he dove for the pier into the water below him after a quick swim he dragged himself ashore feeling no pain he looked down and then horror struck him like this. Gunner's skin was hanging in shreds from both his hands. They looked like the pinkish-brown gills of a river trout. The bombs and machine guns tore into many men and boats. It would take two hours to recount all the carnage, but worse than the sinking ships was the pier itself. It was a magnet for the crippled and the mangled. Walter Lord paints the picture, quote, The pier itself was a sorry sight. Here and there it was pitted with holes and craters, not all of them made by bombs. At least two British ships rammed the walkway in their frantic maneuvers during the raid, crushing wounded under the steel and concrete. Repair crews swarmed over the pier like worker bees, desperately bridging gaps in the pier with doors, hatch covers, and planking salvaged from the twisted sinking boats all around them." And while this was going on, the passenger steamer King Ori began to sink outside the harbor. A naval yacht, aptly named Bystander, appeared and began picking up survivors. On that yacht, there was a cook named J.H. Elton, and he was horrified as he saw his countrymen drowning around him. He had to do something, so he jumped into the frothing ocean. This one man, J.H. Elton, saved over 25 men from the mouth-smothering sea. And when the men were safely on board, he served them. He made them food and hot coffee for them and 97 other men. Working all day, his legs and back a web of pain from the strain. Elton started the day a cook. He ended the day a real hero. Tell me that's not good podcasting. And because of this one cook, hundreds of people are alive today because Elton rescued their grandfathers. Such is the path of heroism. Oh, if only some of you listening to this could have the courage of a cook. How much better our world and our countries and our towns and our streets could be. And Elton wasn't the only hero. One man named Gunner Jennings voluntarily helped a ship surgeon for 48 hours straight, unsleeping. His actions saved innumerable men's lives, but many more were not saved. The losses were so heavy on May 29th, Admiral Pound decided to withdraw the remaining eight modern destroyers from the rescue attempt. From now on, only expendable ships would take part in the rescue. It was a huge blow to Betram Ramsey, the man in charge of Operation Dynamo. He was in the middle of an epic nine-day-long work session, almost without a break, and now this had happened. How was he going to save the men on the beaches of Dunkirk, now that some of his largest ships were removed from service? All of his projections and calculations, calculations that had taken days of invaluable time to create, were totally upended. 
Ramsey had lost almost a third of his shipping space. It couldn't have come at a worse time. The men who had fought to defend the escape corridor. The men who had faced down Rommel's hunting tanks and seen their best friends transformed into a pile of goo. These same men were now making their way to the embarkation points behind the last defensive line surrounding the port of Dunkirk itself. If the men in the pocket weren't evacuated soon, there would be nothing to stop the Germans from capturing tens of thousands of them, an unjust reward for their relentless service in stopping the German advance in the first place. It was their blood and sweat which had kept the rest of the men safe during the preceding operations. To abandon them in their hour of need was not even worthy of consideration. We'll just have to work harder, Ramsey told his staff. We'll just have to do more. He looked around the operation center of Dynamo. The men stared with senseless eyes. They nodded off at their workstations. How could they give more? How could they save the men fighting at Dunkirk? Then there was the question of the last ditch. The perimeter 12-mile-long front surrounding the beachhead. The plan was for the French to man the western end of the perimeter and for the British to defend the eastern end. It would be the final battle line. If the Germans broke through there, hundreds of thousands of men would be lost. Walter Lord summarizes May 29th like this, quote, all through this afternoon of Anglo-French tensions and traffic jams, the last of the fighting troops poured into the final perimeter. Some went straight to the beaches, while others were assigned to the defenses, taking over from the cooks and clerks who had manned the line the past three days. Running parallel to the coast, about six miles behind, a canal was the main line of defense facing south. The British dug in along the north bank, making good use of several farm cottages that stood in their sector. The flat land across the canal should have offered an excellent field of fire, but the road was littered with abandoned vehicles and it was hard to see over them. Now the Germans would have invaluable cover when they attacked. At the moment, this made no difference. There was no sign of enemy ground units anywhere, end quote. That's because the last of the 16 screening stronghold strong points I told you about earlier was falling. At midnight, the remaining Englishmen defending a village 15 miles south of Dunkirk packed up and abandoned their fortress village. Now there was only one fighting line between the entire German army and the beaches of Dunkirk. One fighting line between evacuation and total defeat. There were still thousands of Allied soldiers infiltrating back into the Dunkirk perimeter. They were more or less surrounded by Germans, and firefights sporadically developed as they retreated across the open country, far from the well-patrolled roads. One of the Englishmen retreating was a private named Edgar Rabbits, just another infantryman. But he had one talent. He could shoot. A poacher had taught him everything he knew, and Rabbits, the idiot kid with ears like Dumbo, could stalk a prey like a fox and shoot with the eyes of an eagle. One biographer said he could catch a rabbit by his ears and hide behind a blade of grass. Rabbits knew what he was doing. As a sniper, Rabbits soon developed a few trade secrets of his own. Never snipe from treetops. Too easy to get trapped. Keep away from farmhouse attics. Too easy to get spotted. Best vantage point? Some hiding place where there's room to move around like a grove of trees. Following these rules, Rabbits managed to survive alone most of the way across Belgium. He tried to keep an occasional touch with his battalion, but usually he was deep in German-held territory, once even behind their artillery. From time to time, he matched wits with his German counterparts. One of them once fired at him from a hole in some rooftop. 
missing him by six inches. Rabbits fired back and had the satisfaction of seeing the man plunge out of the hole. Another time, while prowling a village street late at night, rabbits rounded a corner and literally ran into a German sniper. This time, Ted fired first, and he didn't miss. Rabbits ultimately reached the coast near Newport and slowly worked his way west, dipping into the German lines on occasional forays. On May 31st, he finally rejoined the BEF at La Pin, still operating alone and perhaps the last fighting men to enter the perimeter. Rabbits had made it. There were many more, thousands more, who did not. On May 29th, the perfectly named Admiral Wake Walker was summoned into the Dynamo Room, the center of operations for the Dunkirk evacuation. It was 6 o'clock at night. The Vice Admiral gave Wake Walker the once-over and said, How'd you like to go to Dunkirk and sort out the evacuation? Just like he was asking a co-worker from the office to grab lunch with him. Uh, sure, replied Wake Walker. Then he was ushered into a situation room where a well-organized map clearly showed the three embarkation beaches of Dunkirk and the men waiting to embark, all neat and tidy in their little spots. From the map, things look great. This is going to be easy, thought Wake Walker. This is going to be a bloody nightmare, Wake Walker said the next day, May 30th, when the scales had fallen from his eyes and he stepped foot on the beaches of Dunkirk. Things were beyond chaotic. Officers were actually shooting down men for disobedience. The wounded were everywhere. Some were attended by medics. Many weren't. A shudder squirmed down Wake Walker's spine as he passed a man with both his legs blown off below the knee. If only Wake Walker knew this was nothing compared to what he would witness over the next five days. It was Wake Walker who engaged in one of the most remarkable events in human history, the small boats. I'm talking about little fishing vessels. He was the one who called for and organized them. It was the little boats from the little people which saved tens of thousands of men and quite possibly the United Kingdom itself from invasion. On the evening of May 30th, the English Channel literally swarmed with small ships of every conceivable size and shape. A modern historian draws a picture of the scene, quote, here and there were respectable steamers, but mostly they were little ships of every conceivable type. Fishing smacks, drifters, excursion boats, glittering white yachts with gold-encrusted trim, mud-spattered hoppers, tugs, river-sailing barges with distinct brown sails, cabin cruisers, their bright work gleaming in the sun, dredges, trawlers, and rush-streaked scows. Even the Admiral Superintendent's barge with its fancy tassels and rope work. An entire nation, normal people, doctors and fishermen, the rich along with the working poor, pulled their kinsmen from the waters and beaches of Normandy. There never was such a sight. Such an event is worthy of our greatest poets. But where are their songs? End quote. Forty-foot-long cockleboats saved fifty men. Tiny trawlers saved scores more. Each man did his part, and our professors lie and say one man can't make a difference. Everything is systems and class, yet here is the proof of man's personality impacting history if anyone has the eyes to see it. By the afternoon of the 30th, the convoys were so thick in the water it was difficult to tell where one ended and another began, and God quieted the waves too. The sea was little more than a carpet. They glided across it as gracefully as beautiful ice skaters. But if nature was playing ball with the English, the Germans were playing for keeps. By the afternoon of May 30th, all of Dunkirk and much of the English Channel were in range of German artillery, and the shells began to hail 
down death, turning newlyweds into widows back in England. The beaches were a favorite target. The masses of embarking men grouped together in bunches like a bouquet of roses would suddenly explode into a mix of red blood-infused sand and chunks of human bodies. The beach was littered with the detritus of a broken humanity. The progress of mankind had developed these weapons, and then they had progressively blown their fellow men to bits on the beaches of France. It was the beaches where most of the little ships faced their moment of danger. Many, an accountant and plumber, were transubstantiated into heroes that day. The storm of steel raged on at the beach, sent flakes of lead spraying across the sand, wrecking men's bodies. The small ships weren't large enough targets for the Luftwaffe cruising above at 3,000 feet, but for the gunners manning the artillery batteries, a small ship was a cherished trophy. Often there was nothing else in range, so the small boats drank from the bitter cup of war that day. A few fell, most did not. But all the crews would never be the same. There were amazing moments of improvisation, too. British sappers worked together to build a makeshift jetty out of an abandoned transport truck fleet. Lieutenant Bennett, an art professor at Cambridge, was leading the men, and what a leader this art professor was. He had lost hundreds of men in the preceding weeks. They had marched all the previous day and night to reach the beaches. Now was the time for the final push. His men lined up the trucks side by side, leading into the sea. They loaded them with sandbags and shot out the tires to keep them in place. They scavenged timber from a lumberyard for staging. They ripped decking from stranded ships for a plank walkway. They even added safety rope for a railing. That rope saved many a men's lives, and not just that, the rope took the heavy weight off the men's legs, eased their travail, if only for a few minutes. And when they began their work, the sea was out, but soon it came rolling in. The men kept working up to their waist in the body-sucking sea, constantly fighting the water to hold their positions, lashing the trucks together with cable, and it worked. They did it. They saved themselves and thousands more. And I want you listening, and I want the whole world to know these men were heroes. And if you want to be one, the path is filled with work. The path to greatness is paved with hard work. Ain't nobody in this world going to help you but you. The world is a beautiful woman. She gives herself and her love to the strongest and most successful. So get out there and take the world's love. There's nobody going to get you off that beach but yourself. Remember that. Somehow, the word of the makeshift truck jetty passed down the beaches, and men independently began to copy the idea. According to Walter Lord, ten of these makeshift docks were made. Professor Bennett's idea had saved tens of thousands. That's what I call greatness, baby. A modern historian summarizes the results of May 30th. Overall, May 30th proved a very good day. Thanks to better discipline, the lorry jetties, and above all the surge of little ships, the number of men lifted from the beaches rose from 13,752 on the 29th to 29,512 on the 30th. A total of 53,823 men were evacuated on this gray, misty day. The next few days followed a similar pattern. The men holding the perimeter beat back German probes while German and British aircraft sent each other to the next life in the gray skies above Dunkirk. And the whole time, the German artillery carpeted the Dunkirk pocket. Yet the evacuation continued and the numbers actually improved with time. On June 1st, 64,429 men were rescued. 35,000 of them were French. The rest were English. However, 
While things were looking rosy for the British, for the French it was still a total nightmare. Before June 1st, British ships were picking up just a few thousand Frenchmen a day compared to tens of thousands of Englishmen. British ships would eventually rescue tens of thousands of Frenchmen, but hundreds of thousands more ended up in German prison camps. Dunkirk was not a brilliant success for the French. After June 1st, the German attacks proved more effective, and the evacuation figures actually decreased. Men who were supposed to slip away from the perimeter under the cover of night were actually committed to repelling German thrust. They missed their ship to freedom. June 2nd and 3rd saw 24,000 Allied troops rescued from the beaches. By June 2nd, almost the entire British expeditionary force was safe across the channel, but tens of thousands of teeming French humanity still crowded the beaches of Dunkirk desperately hoping to get aboard an English ship and escape the German war machine closing around them. Britain did not disappoint. She kept providing air and sea support for the trapped French army, thereby allowing a further 53,000 French troops to be evacuated over the next two days. Approximately 35,000 French troops were left behind, manning the perimeter that saved the British army. Most of these men were captured, another bird for the German bag. Now I've just described the evacuation on the beaches, the artillery bombardment, and the air war. But there was another war taking place during the events I've just described, a war on the front line. It was the battle for the perimeter of Dunkirk. Okay, if you remember from before, there was about a 12-mile-long front line surrounding Dunkirk. On May 27th, this line was manned by both British and French troops, but each day more and more British troops are pulled out and evacuated across the channel. So as the days wear on, the men holding the line become more and more French. This is their story, the French and the British. Captain J.F. Jeffries was one of the men holding back the entire force of Germanic efficiency, zeroing in on him. For two days, German thrusts had become more deadly, the artillery more accurate, the casualties more severe. On May 31st, the German gunners had found his headquarters and merrily bombarded it for the rest of the day. The men on the front line were constantly shelled. They transformed themselves into human moles, burrowing into the ground. The air above their heads was alive with flesh-maiming metal shards. You could see the shrapnel splash into the dirt after each explosion. Death was always near, closer than my voice you are hearing now. How many times have you cooked a frozen pizza? You set the oven to 400 degrees, throw the pizza in and forget all about it. Inside, the ice-hard cheese transforms into oozing goo, flowing over the edges of the crust, the blood-red sauce bubbling, splattering over the cookie sheet. For one group of men trapped in a basement at Dunkirk, they were the pizza. It was their white skin that flowed over the edge of the crumbling walls around them. It was their crimson blood that bubbled and popped like pimples, Splitting out blood and pus across the dirt floor. A German shell had found their hiding place. The house transformed into the oven. The men transformed into oozing mozzarella. Such was the sacrifice made for Britain. Such was the way men literally choked out their young lives. And don't forget them. All of them, the countless men in the countless basements clogging the countless beaches, the Frenchmen and the Englishmen, the Welsh, the Scots, the Canadian. Their bullet-shattered faces and snot-infused dying breaths should not be forgotten because we owe the debt, a blood debt. And you can never really be an individual when you have a debt like that. No one has ever told you the debt you carry from your ancestors and the debt you owe your children, but I have. I've told you. 
Men were broiled for you while you sit at home and smoke weed and complain on Reddit. Men died for you. You're wasting your life. And it came at such a heavy price. It came with no greater love than man can give. These men gave it all, and their widows were held by other men. Other men delighted in the curves of their hips, felt their wives' heart-quivering breath in the heat of passion. Their daughters sat on other men's laps and forgot what their father's faces looked like, and they didn't do it for you to be a bum. They didn't do it for you to waste the tens of thousands of dollars and pounds poured into your education. You hear me, England? You hear me, Canada? There's a debt on you. I know a lot of you didn't like hearing this. Shoot the messenger if you want. Give me a one-star review if you want. The debt is still there. It can't be drugged away. It can't be reviewed away. The debt remains. May 31st also saw the first major German penetration of the front lines. The British line was anchored on a canal and, at 5 a.m., under cover of darkness, the Germans used rubber boats to cross the water and assault the English positions. By noon, the Allied forces in this sector were in danger of being outflanked. The Germans were eventually beaten back, but just barely. Even the commanders were fighting in the front line, machine-gunning down their enemies like they were regular foot soldiers. And at another point in the line, Germans were fighting hand-to-hand with Allied defenders. They were in the trench works with them. The Englishmen were about to retreat when a second lieutenant named Jones took it on himself to reinforce the faltering Allies. And when he arrived at the breakthrough, he found the British in the midst of a retreat. Jones didn't even hesitate. He drew his sidearm and shot down the panic-stricken Englishmen who were trying to flee the front. This stopped the retreat. Next, Jones ordered the men back into the front lines, and his men used their bayonets to force the soldiers back to the front. If these men had been allowed to flee, tens of thousands of Allied soldiers would have been captured. Jones, by murdering his own fleeing comrades, had saved tens of thousands, and maybe even England itself. And as the day wore on, the Germans attacked first one point and then another, desperately probing for a weakness. And all day long, the Germans played a song of death for the Allies. And if the infantry assaults were the melody of the Axis song that day, the artillery was the backing elements. In between infantry assaults, the Germans played a concerto with their artillery, constantly bombarding the Allied perimeter with an avalanche of steel in a desperate attempt to weaken a decisive point and break through the Allied crust, the way a spoon takes a chunk out of a chicken pot pie. But the Allies didn't take the assaults lying down. Sporadically throughout the 31st, the Royal Air Force would temporarily wrestle the skies from the Luftwaffe and swoop down to aid their comrades manning the front. On the evening of May 31st, 24 English planes single-handedly broke up a German formation massing for an attack on the Allied perimeter near Newport. The men in that part of the line were exhausted. Were it not for the Royal Air Force attack, they might have broken. As it was, the Germans' formations scattered like cockroaches when a blinding light is suddenly flipped on. I'm not making fun of them. I would have scattered for cover too. So would have you. On the night of May 31st, the British troops began to withdraw. First the backing elements, headquarters and support staff. Then the infantry companies withdrew one by one. Silence was everything. The enemy must not know the position was abandoned. The men exposed in the open like strippers. And it usually worked. The walk to the beaches for evacuation was a nerve-shattering nightmare, peppered with random artillery shelling and mortar rounds, but most men made it. 
At 2.45 a.m., a private named Farley was hiding in a cellar, just staring at a wall and hoping the call to disembark would soon come. That's when he heard it, a high-pitched whistle. Suddenly, Farley engaged, machine-like, and pumped up the stairs into the street. The buildings were burning down around him. Shrapnel was rock skipping down the street. Farley winced as one man caught a smoldering piece in the ankle. Still, the men formed up and made their way to the beach. Then they were ordered to run, masses of them running together amid the burning buildings, a perfect target for the Luftwaffe hawks flying above. But no bird of prey came for Farley and his comrades. They ran for a mile, scurrying over trash like parkour experts. The men stopped for nothing. Here... Every man in the herd was on his own. Then Farley and his comrades hit the beach and they were in another world. Gone was the clatter of boots on cobblestones. Now there was only the squish of boot-sucking sand and the Pacific sound of the waves. There was no burning buildings here. The smell of the sea filled your nostrils, lifted your spirits. It was the smell of freedom, of safety, of old England. Then the shelling shifted again, aimed this time right at the beach where the men were running. Private Farley of the Middlesex saw a flash, felt the blast, but oddly enough heard no bang as a close one landed just ahead of him. He was untouched, but the four men running with him all went down. Three lay motionless on the sand. The fourth, propped up on one hand, pleaded, Help me! Help me! Farley ran on. After all, those were the orders. But he knew in his heart that the real reason he didn't stop was self-preservation. The memory of that voice pleading for help would haunt his conscience 40 years later. Half a mile down the beach, Farley found his embarkation point. It was a madhouse. The men were in the right spot, but there was no ship to save them, just empty sea, inky and foreboding in the darkness. No one was in control, so the men broke up into small groups. Some took off for the relative shelter of the buildings in Dunkirk. Others hid away from the mass of men. Most, however, lined up and waited to be saved. But the officers regained control. They organized the small groups of men into makeshift formations and ordered them to walk down the beach to another embarkation point. Most did, but some, exhausted or wounded, were lost on the way. I want you to think of the most littered highway you can imagine, perhaps a back road dump site where trash has amassed on both sides of the roadway. That was what the humanity was like on the beaches of Dunkirk that day. Castaways bleeding out on the beach, paralyzed men drowning in the tide, wounded and dying everywhere, and the artillery randomly blowing them apart. Many died from thirst, losing their minds at the thought of the total dryness of their mouths, drinking the salt water and regurgitating it up, dry heaving as the poisonous water taunted them a few yards away. Think of it! See it in your mind. Face it! And now tell me, mankind is basically good. Oh, mankind! What terrible secrets lurk behind all your talk? The vanity you chase on Twitter? How many hours have you wasted looking at yourself in the mirror, but never seeing past your face and into your innermost soul. What would matter to you if you were the one dying on the beach of Dunkirk? Really, what would you think about for those last few hours? That is the thing that is most important in your life. That is the thing you should chase. That is the thing that dances in your heart. Go out there and get it, man. I'm telling you to. Me, Luke by God Wolf. 
And as the men trudged on towards Dunkirk in the early morning hours of June 1st, there still were not any ships on the beaches. The problem was the Germans. They had put too much pressure on the perimeter, and it had contracted. Therefore, the evacuees weren't where they were supposed to be, a modern historian explains, quote, Every possible contingency had been covered, except the fortunes of war. German pressure on the perimeter was too great. The covering position could no longer be held by the 4,000 men rear guard. Under heavy enemy shelling, the troops were pulling back sooner than expected and farther west than planned. The special toes must be alerted to go to a different place at a different time, but Dover no longer had any direct communication with the special toes. Ramsey could only radio the accompanying minesweepers, hoping that the change in plans would be passed along to the tugs and their toes. He did this. But predictably, his message never got through. The armada chugged on to the original designated spots. But now, of course, there was no one there. With no further directions, they groped along the coast, hoping somehow to make contact, end quote. Eventually, an English officer physically swam out to the ships and told them where to go. His actions saved thousands. Over the next four days, the battle for the perimeter repeated like a broken record. The Germans strafed, bombed, shelled, and attacked the line systematically. Many times they almost broke through. Many times they were beaten back. On June 2nd at 11 a.m., the Germans made another systematic push. Again, a group of Englishmen began to retreat. And again, one man attempted to save the front line from crumbling. His name was Major McCorkdale. McCorkdale ran to the officer in charge of the retreating men. I order you to stay put and fight it out, the Major said. You cannot do that. I have overriding orders from my colonel to withdraw when I think fit, and that time is now. McCordale saw no point in arguing. You see that big poplar tree on the road with the white milestone behind it? The moment you or any of your men go past that tree, we will shoot you down. The officer again protested, but the major had enough. Get back, or I'll shoot you now and send one of my officers to take command of your troops. The other officer just walked away, and McCordell turned to one of his men standing nearby and said, Get a rifle. Sights at 250. You will shoot to kill the moment a man passes that tree. Do you hear me? Yes, sir, the man said. McCordell picked up a rifle himself, and the two men sat waiting, guns trained on the tree. Soon the officer that McCordell had just rebuked reappeared near the tree with two of his men. They paused, looking at each other like men in a western facing down one another. Then the officer moved on past McCordell's deadline. Two rifles cracked at the same instant. The officer fell, but such measures weren't enough. The British line broke that day. And one of the men manning the front line was Jimmy Langley. He had turned a French cottage into a fortress, and now it was under fire. The afternoon turned into a jumble of disconnected incidents, knocking out a German gun with the much-despised boy's anti-tank rifle, then pausing to wash down delicious chicken stew with white wine, using Bryn guns in the attic to set three German lorries on fire, blocking the canal road for precious minutes. At one point, an old lady appeared from nowhere, begging for shelter. Langley told her to go to hell. Then, overcome by remorse, he put her in a back room where he thought she might be safe. Another time, he went to the battalion command post to see how McCordale was getting along. The major was lying beside his trench, apparently hit. I am tired, so very tired, he told Langley. Then, get back to the cottage and carry on the battle. By now, the Germans had occupied a house across the canal from Langley's place, and the firing grew more intense than ever. 
In the attic, one of the Bryn guns conked out, and Langley ordered the other downstairs. It would be more useful there. If the enemy tried to swim the canal and rush the cottage, Langley himself stayed in the attic, sniping with a rifle. Suddenly there was a crash, a shower of tiles and beams, a blast of heat that bowled Langley over. In the choking dust, he heard a small voice say, I'm it! I'm it! Then he realized that the voice was his own. It didn't hurt yet. But his left arm was useless. A medical orderly appeared, slapped on a dressing, and began bandaging his head. So his head had been hit too. Such was the battle on the front line. Just constant heavy fighting, door to door, street to street, hand to bloody hand. It went on like that for two more days. Then on June 4th, the inevitable happened. The Dunkirk shell cracked, and the pocket was finally overrun. Julian Jackson provides a perfect summary of the battle and rescue at Dunkirk. So I'll just quote him, quote, Until the last moment, the evacuation was dogged by chaos and disorganization. Several British ships sailed half-empty on the night of June 2nd because not enough French troops had arrived. British officers toured the beaches looking for more men to take but could not find any. In the end, 338,000 soldiers were evacuated, 198,000 British and 140,000 allies, mostly French. The British had contributed over 700 vessels of all kinds, and the French about 160. Between 30,000 and 40,000 French troops were left behind and taken prisoner. The last ships left the shattered and burning port of Dunkirk in the early hours of June 4th. When the Germans arrived later that morning, the quays were jammed with French soldiers who had been unable to get away, and the dunes strewn with the detritus left by the armies who had marched so confidently into Belgium just three weeks earlier. Operation Dynamo, carried out under constant German air bombardment, was a remarkable achievement. It was made possible by the fact that on May 19th, the British government had as a precautionary measure begun to assemble a small fleet for evacuation. But the key factor was the breathing space afforded to the Allies by an order from Hitler on May 24th for the German troops to stop their advance along the coast. At this moment, Boulogne had already fallen. The siege of Calais was about to begin, and the Germans were 24 kilometers south of Dunkirk. Hitler's order remained in effect until May 30th. Three days lost for the Germans and gained for the Allies, end quote. How different might the world be if Hitler hadn't ordered his panzers to stop and rest for three days? 338,000 Allied soldiers, including the cream of Britain's armed forces, would have been lost to the Allied cause. But worse still would have been the English loss of morale had the entire British expeditionary force been captured. Such are the small quirks of fate or acts of God that make history. What makes the roulette ball land where it does? The casino attendant is sick and doesn't roll the ball with his normal strength. An air conditioner engages and blows on the wheel ever so slightly, and the ball has taken off its original course. Then there's the problem of where. A roulette wheel has spun for tens of thousands of games. Is there a defect in the grooves? Has the ball worn away the laminate at the beginning of its track so that a barely discernible friction forces the ball to skew towards the black? rather than the red. I've seen with my own eyes gamblers cry based on the fall of a roulette ball. I've seen with my own eyes grown men grip their girlfriend's arm, leaving bruises as their eyes laser to the ball follows its track, the hearts of men stopping at the drop of a small silver ball. I've seen women throw themselves at winners, all of this at a backwater casino in a backwater Mississippi town. 
How much more should we draw our breath when human life is at stake? How much more should we bruise our wife's arms when people are dying in the nation on our own borders? Over 100,000 humans, people with feelings, dreams, and families, 100,000 have died in Mexico's drug war since two. 2006. Human lives scattered and blown away just a few miles from America's borders. 13,000 lives have been lost in the Russo-Ukrainian war taking place right now as I speak these words. Even now men are blinking through binoculars, desperately trying to see the movements of the enemy. Even now a technical is patrolling the streets of a barrio, the gunner gripping the steel handles of his 50 caliber machine gun. For most people it means nothing. They're more concerned with the way a little steel ball falls on a table. Games and amusements, bread and circuses. Do you really think mankind is progressing morally? Do you really think a universal government will work? Does the average person care more about a football game or narco violence in Mexico? We all know the answer. Bread and circuses. All of those lives in Mexico and Ukraine, they matter to me. And I will tell those stories and many more, and hopefully some of you will look up from that roulette wheel and step outside into the glaring sun of reality. There's a world out there. Past the derogatory comments on Twitter, past the vain pictures on Instagram, there is a world. And that's another show in the books, guys. I want to thank everyone who's written in. I want you to know that I do read every one of your emails and appreciate them all very much. This show is a lot of fun for me, and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, especially guys like Robert and Will who bought the beer we're drinking tonight, and Ben who broke the bank and bought us a new studio, Mark who's a bigger advocate for this show than I am. I also want to thank Jeremy and all the staff at Firehouse Subs and Waycross who listen while they prep the store, and I'm thanking Charlie commuting in Atlanta and Simon confronting the politicians in Chile. And Ricky and the boys working at the fire station in Missoula. Tommy, everyone knows you're not doing two sets, so you can quit lying to everybody. And everybody I didn't name, it's not because I don't want to, but because we're all out of time. So once again, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times, and good weather, and good people. Bye.